Hello, so this is the first episode of my podcast, which I've just started up, and it grew out of my theology blog called Theology Seeking Faith in Durham, which can be read at theologyseekingfaithindurham.wordpress.com. Uh, and I found that some of the articles, um, in fact, probably most of the articles that I've been writing about, people had comments, people had feedback, whether that be in private messages or public comments or posts uh, or conversations, again, public or private. Um, and I found that there was a thirst and a hunger for people to start a conversation on some issues, whether that be on sexuality, gender, love, theology, whatever it be. Uh, And so I thought perhaps a better format would be um, podcast. uh, And I'm going to be interviewing some people for this podcast um, and the series. And also I'm going to be sometimes doing more of a monologue, but not that long a one, don't worry. Uh, So today, uh, this week's podcast, I went to visit... A man from the True Freedom Trust, somebody who's on their leadership team, uh, to interview him about human sexuality, um, both um, philosophically and theologically, but also scripturally, how he interprets different passages, and asking him some of those, what I would call, unanswered questions about sexuality in the church. Uh, so I think, as I mentioned in my most recent blog post, there are unanswered questions, in my opinion, or questions which haven't been adequately answered or responded to. There may not be an ultimate answer, but there should be as adequate a response as, as we can try and get, and we should be delving further and deeper into these questions all the time, never being scared, never shying away from them. So I asked him about those. Uh, he was a very nice man, and I think we had a very interesting discussion Um, As I say, for the sake of balance and neutrality, I haven't fully made up my mind on this issue. I haven't publicly stated my current views, partly because I haven't fully made up my mind, partly because I want to have an open, neutral, balanced conversation. Um, I think this is also a good time to discuss these issues, as as it's obviously very big in uh, English churches, uh, with the Methodist Church going through the process of uh, gradually trying to legalise same-sex marriage in its churches, uh, with the other Anglican churches across the communion, but particularly in the Western world, legalising, and in America, legalising uh, same-sex marriage, allowing um, active, sexually active um, gay priests uh, who are married into the priesthood. And also, as um, soon in the spring of next year, 2020, the Living in Love and Faith report on Human Sexuality, which is going to recommend a range of teaching resources, is coming out soon. So there may be a new teaching document, which all ordinands have to sign up to. So for all of those reasons, I thought it would be a relevant conversation. And again, if you want to check out more about my thoughts and questions on this issue that I've written down, go to my one well, of my most re- recent blog posts, Sexuality, the Unanswered Questions. Right, I hope you enjoy it. Just finally, before we start... I want to note that the individual that I've interviewed is a member of the leadership team of the True Freedom Trust, which has been going for 20 years and works closely with the registered UK charity Living Out. Both groups quite strongly believe that 
Christian marriage can only be between one man and one woman and that any sexual acts outside of that union are morally wrong and sinful. And that includes uh, homosexual sex and sexual relations between one man and one man or one woman and one woman or multiple men or multiple women. Um, the individual that I've interviewed is very careful and particular to distinguish between when he's talking about his own personal uh, opinions and views and when he's talking about those that are officially of the True Freedom Trust. So please bear that in mind. Uh, I don't want to name the individual because I don't want this to get personal. Um, I think we should debate the arguments and the issues on their own terms and their own merit. And I think the process and the, the purpose behind this is to really have a deep, in-depth discussion and conversation about this, be open to all of the arguments, and then individually, separately, uh, discuss them and their merit and their strength and their probability and their potential for truth, and then come to a final conclusion, adding them all up, weighing them all up, and putting them all together. Feel free to give any feedback um, with any comments below this audio file, or you can send me private messages on my social media networks, and uh, enjoy. So let's dive in. Hello, so this is the first episode of my podcast, which I've just started up, and it grew out of my theology blog called Theology Seeking Faith in Durham, which can be read at theologyseekingfaithindurham.wordpress.com. Uh, and I found that some of the articles, um, in fact, probably most of the articles that I've been writing about, people had comments, people had feedback, whether that be in private messages or public comments or posts uh, or conversations, again, public or private. Um, and I found that there was a thirst and a hunger for people to start a conversation on some issues, whether that be on sexuality, gender love, theology, whatever it be. Uh, and so I thought perhaps a better format would be um, podcast. Uh, and I'm going to be interviewing some people for this podcast um, and the series. And also I'm going to be sometimes doing more of a monologue, but not that long a one, don't worry. Uh, so today, uh, this week's podcast, I went to visit a man from the True Freedom Trust, somebody who's on their leadership team, uh, to interview him about human sexuality, um, both um, philosophically and theologically, but also scripturally, how he interprets different passages, and asking him some of those, what I would call, unanswered questions about sexuality in the church. Uh, so I think, as I mentioned in my most recent blog post, there are unanswered questions, in my opinion, or questions which haven't been adequately answered or responded to. There may not be an ultimate answer, but there should be as adequate a response as, as we can try and get, and we should be delving further and deeper into these questions all the time, never being scared, never shying away from them. So I asked him about those. Uh, he was a very nice man, and I think we had a very interesting discussion. 
um, as I say, for the sake of balance and neutrality, I haven't fully made up my mind on this issue. I haven't publicly stated my current views, partly because I haven't fully made up my mind, partly because I want to have an open, neutral, balanced conversation. Um, I think this is also a good time to discuss these issues, as, as it's obviously very big in uh, English churches, uh, with the Methodist Church going through the process of uh, gradually trying to legalise same-sex marriage in its churches, uh, with the other Anglican churches across the communion, but particularly in the Western world, legalising in America, legalising uh, same-sex marriage, and allowing um, active, sexually active um, gay priests uh, who are married into the priesthood. And also, as um, soon in spring of next year, 2020, the Living in Love and Faith report on human sexuality, which is going to recommend a range of teaching resources, is coming out soon. So there may be a new teaching document, which all ordinands have to sign up to. So for all of those reasons, I thought it would be a relevant conversation. And again, if you want to check out more about my thoughts and questions on this issue that I've written down, go to my one of my most re- recent blog posts, Sexuality, the Unanswered Questions. Right, I hope you enjoy it. So let's dive in. Uh, I think you mentioned that, uh, about Paul t- when he talks about celibacy, and mm. obviously also Jesus in Matthew nineteen twelve, I think it is, talking about um, some people make themselves uh, eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. Um, uh, with the language that Paul's talking about, um, mm. he seems seems to me to be saying that it's a certain gift or calling. Mm. Um, and if that's true. Um, a lot of people um, have said to me, well, how, how is it that you can say that everyone who's gay just happens to have the gift or the calling of celibacy? Mm. Isn't it more a sort of individual thing? Um, what, what would you say to that? Yes, uh, uh, yeah, it, it's, it's a tough one. Okay, so in Matthew 19, Jesus talks about um, three types of eunuchs, doesn't he? Yeah. Um, and there's the kind of physical eunuch who was often being emasculated for sort of well, you know, what happened. That was a, you know a, a very physical thing. Or it could, of course, actually be somebody who, who was actually born physically with some yeah. you know genitalia problem or ambiguity or whatever. Obviously, in other words, in the world this is going to happen. You know, in yeah. society um, this is going to happen. I mean, we don't see many sort of eunuchs and castanjis. And I, actually, the, the Lord is using the word eunuch figuratively, yeah. obviously, because it's just using it in very broad terms to say there's that sort of stuff. Um, and then uh, there are those who, for one reason or another, won't get married. You know, I mean, I gave a bit of a talk at my church on this a few months ago. Um, and couple of the sort of single older ladies, we've got a couple of single older ladies and men in the congregation. So well, for most of us it will just, just be, it just didn't happen, I just didn't meet the right sure. girl, the right one, whatever, you know. Um, and then he talked about those who actually make a choice yes. to effectively, you know, to be you know, okay, effectively to remain celibate yeah. um, for a moral uh, commitment or, or whatever. Um, I'm going to go with the notes on my sound. Um, and then when Paul, especially in Corinthians, is talking about this, um, he, you know, some people would say that he 
really eulogizes about senoris and said, you know, don't change, don't get married, be like I am, and that sort of thing. If you take the whole balance of Paul's writings, yeah. in fact, you know, he also speaks very strongly about marriage and, and, and so on. Um, and by the way, I think Paul had been married personally. I think right. it's extremely unlikely that in that culture, by his age, as a rabbi, he wasn't married. So I assume either she died or when he saw the light, she just took sure. off somewhere, you know. Um, but the point is that at that time, he is a single person, clearly yeah. a single man, you know, whatever it's happened. I might be wrong there. Um, and his own experience of just being utterly focused on evangelism, uh, I think also that the thought at the time that the end times would be coming, because the Lord was coming, it wouldn't be that long before he came back again. And so let's just get on uh, and sort of, you know, preach the gospel and that sort of thing. Um, um, and I think what, where he's coming, well, it, where, where he's coming from is this will be the case in society. There is special grace uh, of God and I can testify to it myself. Yeah. And, and he is like a, someone that we can look to as a role model. Um, and yeah, the gift thing is very difficult. Mm. Um, now, uh, and I've said many times said, well, well, you know, okay, it's a gift. Uh, yeah, um, the the, ten, the the tendency it is to think, well, okay, whatever my situation, whether it's good or bad, it all comes from God, and it's it's therefore a gift from Him. But subliminally, what we're thinking of is, oh, you know, um, but my aunt Gertie gave me this gift of some dreadful sweater that she'd knitted and it was awful and I couldn't bear to wear it, but well, I've got to grip my teeth and say thank sure. you for that. Um, I don't think that's, that's scriptural, um, although it's very, very difficult actually to say, God, you know, um, I have this issue or, and or I've got to remain celibate. Um, that's really quite difficult. And any other thing that you wouldn't have chosen that you didn't like, like people with all sorts of physical and mental disabilities or great tragedies that happen in their life, these all will happen, but there is grace from God. Um, and yes, I don't think say anybody who's gay therefore has a special gift. No. Um, and I think another aspect of it is that Wherever you are, whatever your situation at the time, um, you can't do anything more about it, you can't change it. And therefore, you are gifted with that particular situational status in your life. Um, so for example, this might sound a bit unconnected, but um, I, I've met a number of people, one friend, very often, or fairly often, would say to me, oh, I don't know if I'm a real Christian. Am I really pleasing to God? Have I really repented of my sin? Am I really leading a good life? Now, I think probably every Christian world over at times would have that feeling, because we're always going to fall short. We've always got to grow in God. And I would say to him, to a very simplistic answer, is, okay, um, God accepts you as you are. You genuinely get on your knees, or you don't even have to do that now, repent of your sin, uh, he then says, you know, if you, your heart's genuine, you, you ask for forgiveness, that he will give you forgiveness. 
you accept him, so you are a Christian. You've, you've come to faith, you've believed, you've repented. So right now, at this point, you are a Christian. Okay? Yeah. Now, whatever else there is in your life, um, right now, you know, you've made some huge mistakes at work, for example, because you weren't functioning as a Christian. Or you've got issues like you've been into wrong sexual relationships or, or, or whatever. Um, but right now, you are a Christian. And as you follow Jesus, as you do God's will, he will change you and then help you with your circumstances. So whatever my status at that point is a gift from God. So for example, um, if I were 18 or 21 like you, or 26 or 36 or whatever, and single, right now, that is a gift from God. That's where I am, that's what I am as a believing Christian. Um, and that singleness could be, well, I'm still very young, um, I haven't yet met the right person, or I'm fo following my studies on my career for another few years. It could be um, that my relationship broke up. For whatever reasons, good or bad, it doesn't matter who's guilty, you can still repent before God. It could be that you're a widow, that you're divorced, that you're between marriages, or whatever. But at that time, you know, this is, this is what I have to live as my life, as a gift from God. Now that might sound a little bit of a sort of a, um, a waffly sort of politician's type answer. No, no. Um, it, it may be a little bit helpful. Yeah. It seems a lot black and white. Sure, sure. So um, I think uh, sort of general just as about um, all, um, all being gift and trying to be um, grateful and thankful in each situation. Yes, that's right. Uh, so so would, would you say that um, God is controlling all situations in our lives and all circumstances, so, so therefore whether or not you're single or married at certain points in your life, mm. that that's all from God or is it? Partly you and partly God, or oh, that's another very sixty-four thousand dollar question, isn't it? Yes, that's right. Like, the, the, hmm. does God ordain absolutely every circumstance? Does He tailor make your situations and that sort of thing? Um, a, a cop out from that question, of course, is well, God is ultimately control of it, in control of absolutely everything. Um, I personally, I don't go along the line of you know, coming one level down from that and saying God is actually sitting there and sort of planning everybody's um, path. I get shot down this. Or especially bringing um, difficulty or tragedy or triumphs along them to, to test them out. I don't go that way. Sure. Having said that, there is no doubt um, that we will all face trials yeah. because of the, 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 the world we live in. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> the scripture is quite clear that we will all face trials of different kinds and it's these things that are, that are going to be the making of us because it's how we embrace them, how attitude towards them, how we handle yeah. them, how we get through them um, and that sort of thing. Would I say, I mean the Bible is clear that God doesn't put temptation in your way. Yeah. Um, but he certainly will bring or allow, <laughs> yeah. a big difference, yeah. uh, trials to come. 
Um, you're getting into more general grounds here. I mean, would I say that God has sort of always, I've been a Christian sort of all my adult life really, would I say that God has sort of ordained every step and every trial? Um, uh, no, but I, I very often when I look back and I say, oh, I mean, like for example, I would say, you know, when I was much more closer, much closer to yours, I reckon it's one of the most, most ridiculous choice of animals. I made the most ridiculous choice of Indian thing. How things might have been different, and yet when I look at how things have worked out, I said, goodness, if I hadn't done those ridiculous aims yeah. and done that ridiculous decree, sure. I, I wouldn't have been blessed by this, 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 yeah, this. Opportunity. Um, in the same way, uh, some people are very um, um, strong on praying about everything and hearing God's answer to everything. And I think yeah. you do need to pray about major things like marriage, job, relationships, sure. where to live. I, I, I do think so. But actually, God does give us cerebral powers, all sorts of free will decision-making, thinking, uh, intellectual skills, physical skills, and um, he expects us to use them. And I don't think that the main thing is, oh, what, believe it or not, even what job I should do or where I live, um, but more the calling of a Christian is to serve God and to be in a position and situation where, first of all, I can grow my personal relationship and secondly, I can share my faith with other people. Yeah. And the most important thing is that I can get on and do that rather than saying, should I be a vicar, a solicitor, a teacher, a doctor, or sure. whatever. Um, so that, that waffled into the general there. But come, come back to oh, your question, how can I help a little bit more? Yeah, you know, I, I, uh, the, the reason I said that is um, uh, yeah, just because of um, well, what you were saying about uh, God gifting different mm. uh, situations. But I think that's, that's made it clear, thanks. Um, I was just going to ask, um, Obviously, one of the, the big passages about um, homosexuality and same-sex attraction is um, um, 1 Corinthians um, 6. Yeah. And obviously there, there's uh, it's termed a, a vice list of different sins about mm. uh, theft and drunkenness mm. and etc. Mm. Um, I guess what my question would be, would be um, how... Uh, I'm presuming you, that you're holding to um, salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Mm -hmm. In which case, why is it that, that he says uh, that those particular groups of people that he lists mm. will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Doesn't that imply that, it, that there's something to do with works involved there? Um, maybe, yeah. <laughs> there's another great argument about, you know, sort of grace and, and works and, and so on. Um, yeah, I, I think... You all just asking me about my personal theology here, and yet it, it is by grace, it is by faith alone. But what is very definitely expected is that following that, you do works, you don't earn your salvation. Yeah. Um, but it's very, very much, you read James on this, on this you very much, um, once you've received faith and grace from God, then there's absolutely no doubt that we are expected to work. 
Now, with yeah. that passage in 1 Corinthians 6, um, first of all, realise that Corinthian was absolutely the sin city. Corinth yeah. was absolutely the sin city of the time. And there was all sorts of stuff going on there. Um, and I suppose, it, in fairly simple terms, the way I would see it, and I'm, I'm definitely no theologian, we've got a couple of people in the organisation who do most of our speaking okay. engagements, and I, I don't. I do the pastoral work mainly. Um, and, and that is that there was all sorts of stuff going on in Corinth, as there is everywhere, you know. Um, but very particularly, that's the environment at the time. Um, and people who deliberately chose to follow those sorts of lifestyles, well, you know, um, well, yeah. <laughs> um, they were going to be excluded. Um, because if you've come to faith... See, I, I, I often say that I, I don't think I can put Christian standards on non-Christian people. Yes. I, I really do. And when we sort of criticise our politicians and so on, I think, well, if they haven't got any moral compass anyway, you know. <laughs> um, so, but I think what Paul is saying, because I think we need to keep this simple, is that um, if, you, if the light's come, your conscience has been awakened, yeah. then you do not continue to cheat, yes. to live an extremely proud yeah. lifestyle, to do certain sexual sins yeah. or whatever. Um, and he does also say in that passage, of course, um, this is all the list of things that were going on, and many of you were in one of these categories, such yes. were some of you. Yes. Um, and he's saying that, you know, that there is, there is change, there is healing. Yeah. Now, when he uses the term, this is something that you could look at in your research, because I have never really particularly followed it up. But when you're looking in your research, you must also be very careful about the, the terminology. Mm. Because you know that Paul uses words that often are interpreted in English Bibles as sexual immorality. Yes. He also talks about. Um, we can also use the, well, the word homosexual is used, but that word was only invented in the late Victorian period. Um, yes. And, and that, that's where you've got to be very careful. Yes, it's not a very good translation. <laughs> no, no, it, 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 indeed. Um, something like the passages where it says, you know, if one man lies with another yes. man, you know, lieth with another. Yes. Leviticus type stuff is it's sure. always a bit clearer, really. Yes. Um, and I can only give you signposts here, really, and you, you probably are onto this already. But it, when he uses um, some, some terms in this, this list, um, different terms, you'd have to go back to the original. And yeah. I think he's actually using, he's distinguishing possibly between the active and passive male partner. Uh, that's malakoi and arsenikoi time, don't yeah. come across that. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, again, this is for your, this is just signposting, but um, I don't think, uh, the, the implication seems to me yeah. To be, if you're the passive partner, you're a bit weak, and, uh, and, and whereas if you're the strong, active partner, yeah. that seems to be, um, I don't know, a more 
acceptable. That there seems to be some of that implication, but I think again you'd have to examine it within the context yes. of the culture and yeah. you know, I mean, temporal prostitution and sexual, um, whatever sexual activity yes. in a pre-Christian tradition and all that sort of thing. Um, but anyway, yeah, sorry, follow up your theme. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I suppose I, I was just trying to um, see. Cause I, I suppose one of the bigger questions, obviously, um, which you, you touched on, was that um, at that time, generally speaking, I mean, there were a couple of people that knew, but generally speaking, they had a, a very different understanding of sexual orientation, and I don't think, I don't think they really thought that people were naturally uh, born with. Um, sexual desires towards uh, the same gender mm. um, and often uh, particularly in the, the Greco-Roman world they believed that it was uh, an excess of lust that, that led to that mm. and it was the sign of the, uh, a diminution of their masculinity etc. Mm-hmm. Do you think that has, um, do you think that could have an impact on um, the relevance of that passage in 1 Timothy 10 today mm. Or, or, or do you think that Paul did know and did understand sexual orientation? Or um, yeah, I, I think it would be different. Actually, I think his understanding would be different because in those sort of pre-Christian cultures, it was very acceptable for a man to have sort of a rent boy type thing, wasn't it? And, and um, and they wouldn't be described in today's parlance as gay or, or anything, but that was actually the sign of man manhood, I think, is that, you know, yeah, you had your, your, your woman, your wife, or whatever, um, but for, for your sort of delight and gratification, you know, down the bathhouse or whatever, um, you know, you, you would sort of be having some sort of sex with, with, with boys. Um, so... Yeah, that, that needs teasing out within, within the culture. But I think scripture is quite, we would say that scripture is quite clear yeah. that a physical, you know, sexual contact between, say, two males yes. is not what God wants. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think... Um, I think often on the more liberal side of the debate, there's a lot of trying to sort of um, get around the, the the terms like uh, you mentioned, um, arsenicotes, and mm. um, a lot of people will try and say actually it's uh, pedestry or it's master-slave relationship, yeah, relationship with dominant, etc. But yeah. I think really uh, that this overwhelming scholarly consensus today, anyway, is yeah. that it just means. And a, um, a male line with a male, yeah. and that can include those things, but it's absolutely. not limited to those things. That's right. absolutely. So, so I, yes, yeah, so I, I certainly agree with that. Mm. Um, but I, I suppose that the, the question would be: um, Would you approve of a um, celibate civil partnership that was same sex, or? Um, a celibate civil partnership. Yes. Well, for, for example, um, yeah. in, the, in the church thing, it's quite, it's quite common amongst the, the priesthood, isn't it, of someone like Geoffrey John, for instance, 
uh, Orange Cove. Uh, he was uh, dean in the Church of England. Yeah. 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 Um, I just meant to hold that question. <laughs> sure, thank you. Thanks. Yeah, so, so basically, um, I was saying that, um, well, you, um, I think in America it's something like 2% of, um, of marriages in general are um, celibate. Um, really? Yeah, um, and quite a lot of marriages that are, that, that have, uh, well, quite, quite a lot of marriages uh, go through celibate phases, I think yeah. it's fair to say. Yeah. Um, and so a lot, a lot of people uh, that I've come across that uh, they don't identify as gay because they don't see that part, as part of their identity but see it as part of their uh, experience of, of life and their sort of perception and uh, outlook you might say um, and they'll say what, what I really like is the sort of um, uh, companionship um, and something to combat the, the loneliness of yes. being single um, so I, I, so some of some of them have um, said, well, the way that I've got round that is, I, I, I'm still celibate, but I live in a in a same sexual partnership where I'm living with the other person, but I'm not having sex with them. But what are they? Are they very? Are they best friends? Are they intimate? Do they share a bedroom? They don't share a bedroom, but it's yeah. just sort of. Um, I don't know. I, I suppose. Committed to one suppose another, yeah, I suppose it's, it's yeah more about commitment, dedication. Yeah. Um, Love um, that that largely about sort of deep friendship and companionship and int intimacy, but not in a physical or sexual way. Yeah, um, that's that's interesting. I mean, I, if I were to take a step back from that now, yes. um, what we often deal with is okay. I am same sex attracted. I have therefore got to be single and celibate um, and I'm going to be on my own and I'm going to be lonely and sure. that sort of thing uh, and that's a massive thing and an ongoing thing 
Um, and so then the, the question is, well, what sort of friendship can I have? How intimate can I be? Yeah. Um, and the answer to that is, <laughs> but what do you mean by intimacy? Mm. So I'm not actually saying sexual. I mean, about actually yes. saying, yes. you know, come on someone's their team, let's have a cuddle. Um, I, I, or I'm just saying that, you know, when we are very good, close friends, we're committed to each other. Um, there's massive warning lights for us. If, right. If someone is same-sex attracted, and they, it's kind of this thing about intentional friendship, isn't it? So do I go out deliberately trying to make good friends um, because otherwise I'm going to be lonely and, un and unfulfilled? And it's a massive risk. It's a massive risk. Well, I'm saying from a Christian standpoint. Right. Um, and we're seeing it because we have a massive experience, you know. Um, but um, some people do make it work. Right. So, for example, uh, <coughs> within Jubilee Investment, we've got kind of thousand members. That doesn't mean terribly, we need to just subscribe to our mailing list. Sure, sure. We have conferences, the annual conference, a hundred people will come, it's not thousands. Um, and amongst our sort of board membership over the years, I could easily name half a dozen couples where they just say, he would just say, look, here's my best friend, we do life together, we share a house. Um, <clears throat> you know, we have separate bedrooms, we love each other, you know, and I know couples of females, couples of men. Some, stopped, some people stumble against it, but I, I know some of these people seem to make it work. Right. You soon know if it doesn't work because sure. you're likely to get very emotionally dependent, which puts you apart, or it's going to end up sort of being you know, tempted sexually. And, sure. And so sure. Where, you know, where, where are you? So some people can, can make it work, mm -hmm. and people have very different opinions on this. Um, but, you know, we at TFT would say. I mean, so don't say nothing physical is acceptable. Yes. You can't say that sure. because, for example, you know, it depends what sort of church you go to, but you know, sort of like a church I go to is an independent fellowship. We're all very huggy on Sunday yes. morning. Yeah. Sure. So we're all huggy and we're physical men and women will mix whatever. Sure. You know. But if you're choosing that one person, by definition, you know, you really love that one person. Yeah, so um, we would be extremely guarded. Right. Having said that, um, when has your research got to be submitted to whatever the bishop, the dean? Uh, it, it's, it, no, no, it, it's, um, it, it's, it's just personal research, okay. really. Yeah, yeah. The reason I say that is yeah. because you, our, annual, our annual national conference is always the first weekend in October. Oh, okay. In Shropshire. Um, I suppose you've gone back to Durham then. Um, and it's for support of SSA people, so sure. a lot of the people SSA, sure. dominantly male, because it's far more of a male issue. Right. Um, I don't think I'll go into that now. Sure. But increasing numbers of females are coming forward, and even people now are struggling with gender dysphoria, right. which is the latest trendy thing. But, you know, parents of a gay son or uh, friends, pastors, vicars will come along. So it's for the whole issue. Sure, sure. Um, like that. We have talks. It's actually the Bishop of Birkenhead is doing oh, four yes. main talks this year, and then we always have some optional seminars, and there are three seminars this year. One of which is this whole thing about house sharing, having a good close friend, 
one very good close friend, um, is it acceptable, how do you make it work? Sure. And so we've got um, two couples, well, so a pair of men, no, we've got two female couples who live in a house share. We've got two single, actually one of them is me. Okay. Uh, and the four groups of people, two couples and two couples, sure. sort of share different attitudes and aspects towards um, having one rather exclusive friendship. Yes. Um, and whether you can share house and that. Yes. Some people go for a bit more of a community. Sure. Um, they, you know, they, they've got a couple of spare bedrooms, so they rent them out, you know. Um, but, I mean, certainly we wouldn't for one moment think that there was any legal commitment in terms of a civil partnership or right. a marriage. I mean, we're not, we wouldn't go there for one moment, I mean, we wouldn't do it broadly now. But having said that, of the people that will attend this seminar in a couple of months' time, there will be very differing opinions. Right. And some people would say, I just end up being tempted. Sure, sure. Aroused or whatever. So, um, I, I guess some people would say, well, the reason why I'd want um, a civil partnership would be, I, I don't think that marriage fits in with what the Bible says about marriage, um, and I don't think that would be right for me, and I think there's, I think you, well, you, I think you could probably argue in terms of uh, liturgically and legally and just in society generally that there's a greater focus on... Um, well, on, on sex and procreation within when you use the term marriage, mm. um, and so perhaps, well, I, I, I guess one of the questions would be um, if, if as a compromise or a halfway house, mm. uh, uh, an organisation like, like, for example, the Church of England were to say, okay, we're not going to uh, go for same-sex marriage because mm. we don't believe that fits in what the Bible says. Mm wouldn't pass through the house of laity or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but we're going to say, for those priests and churches that want to opt in, mm -hmm. they can perform um, civil union or civil partnership ceremonies, mm -hmm. um, and it, there won't be any mentions of sex or physical intimacy in the liturgy. Mm -hmm. um, uh, would that make it more acceptable to you or would it still be a sort of no-go? Because I, I suppose people would say the reason why I'd want that legal yeah. framework would yeah. be it's, a, it's being open and public and honest about this is precisely how I've chosen to live my life yeah. and I'm not being sexual or um, physically intimate with this person but I am making a, uh, a commitment to deep friendship and companionship and living together. Mm. I don't I, 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 I even go there for one, for one minute, quite honestly. Um, I mean, I just, because, I mean, civil partnership existed because marriage wasn't possible. Yes. And it still is possible now to do, now, now it's possible to do either, but you are still sure. talking about essentially a complete commitment, really. Right. You know, uh, I think you're inventing something different at there. Actually, okay. Right. Which would be, um, uh, you know, something new in the Chinese, Chinese, in the Anglican um, literature. Yes. Yes. Um, 
which is a commitment of friendship. Uh, um, and, and with uh, okay, all right. Why not do that for heterosexual friends? You know, if two if right far more likely with girls. Sure. All right, if two girls are really, really, absolutely great mates. Yes. You see, I, I've got two very good friends in my church. Yeah. They are my sort of age. Yes. And they are absolutely best buddies and have yeah. been for I don't know twenty twenty five years. Sure. I think. Sure. Um, they have their own houses, although they've talked about, and then they think when we get very old, we might sort of share together. Right. And there's nothing, you know, it's, it's just simply that neither of them got married, and it's sure. an extremely good friendship. Um, you know, the thought that they might sort of have some sort of church blessing or whatever just sort of fills them out to the world. Um, but if we're actually talking about two ladies who are actually same-sex attracted. Um, you know, I mean, it seems to me, well, how, how do you just miss the sex? You, you know, right. I, I couldn't even go there, to be honest. Right, okay. Yeah, but there we are. Okay. Um, and... Okay, excuses it's fine. No, 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 it's fine. It's in, in, in the end, you, you sort of, uh, you, we can end up finding all sorts of ways around scripture, you know, like yes. the Levitical thing is often dismissed, sure. not reasonably explained by yes. the fact that there was a lot of temple prostitutes, and what he's really saying is, that you're not to go up to the temple and have sex with a young boy. Kind of sure, thing. sure. Um, don't doubt that. Yes. In existence, but I don't think the Bible is only talking about Yes, that. yes, no, I, I'd agree with that. Um, and, and if it was, why wouldn't it say, in that particular context, why, why, is it, why does it just make a general statement and say, a man lie with a man, why doesn't it say, uh, why doesn't it use the terms of prostitution? So yes. I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, but um, I, I guess one of the bigger questions that comes in with that passage is uh, most scholars agree that Paul's clearly drawing on that in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and obviously with, with his background as a, as a Pharisee and a rabbi yeah, yeah. Um, and he's probably taking the the, um, the Septuagint, the Greek translation version of it to, to put together that word mm. arsenikoti. Why, why do you think it is that Paul chooses to create um, a new word uh, for um, a man lying with a man when there are already lots of uh, Greek words at that time for homosexuality in, in general because I suppose that's one of the arguments that a lot of people who are more liberal on this issue will say well if he was just talking about adult consensual long-term living um, same-sex relationships then he would have used one of the words that was already in existence in that language in that culture at the time. Okay. Um, you're, you're getting a bit too theological. Sorry. I, I could, um, you know, if, if your researches fail on that, I could certainly put you in touch with our main speaker. He's very theological. I'm Thank sure you. He would, you know, That'd be great. He Thank might you. just give you a, an opinion on that. Thanks. Um, yeah. And then just, sorry, I'm sorry. That's fine. With um, uh, the other thing that people sometimes well, argue for is what about a committed, celibate, loving, yeah. monogamous relationship? Yeah. And I would understand that. I mean, I would totally understand sure. that. I have sympathy with it. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm talking about the sexual relationship, because, I mean, the, the homosexual, um, non-Christian lifestyle is extremely promiscuous. It's a very, very promiscuous. It's very sexualized and very promiscuous compared with heterosexual. 
Um, so, and so I would understand that, you know, the committed, monogamous, loving, faithful. Sure. And I don't want to knock gay relationships, because I know that there's a huge divorce rate uh, amongst yeah. opposite sex couples anyway, but gay relationships are not usually very long-lasting. Um, you know, or, you know, they do last 10, 15 years, and then, then they, they, they break up. And that would be silly, just to say that's a you know, generalisation, but I think... Sure. If you were to examine statistics on this, yeah, um, because it, it, it it's not ordained by God, it doesn't work. Basically, sure. You know what I'm so I, I would have a lot of sympathy and understanding with someone saying someone arguing with that point of view. Yes. But I, I'm afraid that still, um, it, 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 we, we wouldn't go there. You know? So, so um, <clears throat> another point people will say is because of Paul's um, background as a uh, a scribe and uh, a Pharisee and being very zealous about his faith mm. what he is doing in uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is taking the verses from Leviticus 18 and 20 I think it is and ripping them out of the Old Testament context and then simply importing them into the New Testament, the New Covenant without a specifically Christian um, explanation, justification mm. as to why is that still wrong now, mm. whereas uh, other prohibitions about not eating shellfish or about not wearing clothes of mixed fibres, mm. uh, things like that, um, I suppose the, the question would, would get on to, well, because, it, because a lot of people see it as, as a ceremonial uh, law prohibition, mm. why is it in so why does it suddenly change from Old Testament to New Testament, from being ceremonial to moral law, do you, do you think? Yeah. I think, again, that's, that's a big theological thing. Um, and, I, and I can really understand that, again. Sure. You know, that why is it we can eat shellfish and trim our beards, sure. um, but we still can't have sex with them? But I think people who've really examined this and written about it would actually say that it's absolutely true that some of the Levitical law still holds and some yes, of it doesn't, yeah. and that the New Testament is actually clear. Uh, um, you know, if for example in the New Testament there's a complete change and you now are able to eat all foods, you know, uh, in other words, the New Testament is actually clear as to whether they are upholding what was written in Leviticus or saying there's a new law. So you'd have to examine it bit by bit, really. Yes. Um, but then some people, you know, Christians who I know, who rub shoulders with, sure. actually would still say, I will never eat, for example. Yes, God. yes. You know, yeah. they won't eat And I don't eat sort of mold. Yes, yes. And I suppose some of those things, you think, well, it doesn't really matter whether I have black pudding yes. or breakfast or not, sure. sexual things. I, yeah, you, you've got to examine that, that bit by bit. Really yes, yes. Really what the, the, the New Testament is saying. Yes, yes. And um, traditionally, obviously, and especially in uh, the Roman Catholic Church and probably the Eastern Orthodox Church as well, um, part of the reason why marriage and um, uh, long-term sexual unions that are legally recognised have been... Uh, limited to people of uh, opposite sexes and to heterosexuals has been um, largely to do with 
procreation and reproduction and creating a, a stable, mm. uh, loving environment for upbringing and the raising of children, etc. Mm. Um, one of the questions, I suppose, would be um, for those who were... So let's say you have a, a, an adult uh, man and an adult woman and they're both, both infertile and they both know that each other is infertile. Mm. Uh, and they said, um, we want to get married and they're both Christians. Mm. Um, w would you say that the fact that they, there's no chance that either of them can reproduce would limit or constrain or restrict their marriage? Is, is reproduction or procreation such a key pillar of marriage that it would have to restrict their marriage if they knew they couldn't perform that function, as it were? So, so you're saying they shouldn't get married? Um, I, I, I'm not su suggesting either way. I, I'm, I'm just trying to ask, um, would that be your view that they shouldn't get married or would it be that their marriage would be of a lesser order or it would be restricted more? Or? Well, I, that is... I, I, I mean, I'm just shooting at you. I'm sure. not saying that not for one moment. And um, you only need one of them to be infertile. You're not both of them, let's face it. Uh, and I know a lot of couples who've done that and a lot of couples who've ended up um, adopting. Right. Um, but but uh, yeah, I think you do raise an interesting broader issue that I think procreation and the size of your family is massively important in the Old Testament. And there's a sense in which still strength and everything in a lot of non-Western societies is still very much measured by how many children you have, especially sons, obviously, and the very ignominy of not having a child, especially not having a son. Um, so, um, when you move into the New Testament, and that's all a bit dispiriting for single people, gay people, whatever, but when you move into the New Testament, I think there really is a paradigm shift. Um, and I think the emphasis is far more on spiritual children and talking about the unit passage in, in uh, where is it, Matthew? Uh, Matthew 19, 12, I think it is. If you look, now there's a unit passage in I think it's it, Ezekiel. Yeah, I think there's one in Ezekiel and one Isaiah, I think. Uh, I think it's Ezekiel. Yes, yeah. It's a prophetic thing. Yes. Where the prophet speaks... Um, about even though you know you've been a eunuch and you've yes. like a dried up old tree, um, and, and I know there's different levels with where that can be applied. Yes. Um, but I think that's wonderfully prophetic about the yes. future that it's not all about physical sure. children, um, and there's far more of an emphasis on um, spiritual children and everybody having a place in the body yes. and there being a role for single people. I yes. Very much the shift. Now, going back to the, the Matthew 19 thing again, yes. choosing celibacy for, for the kingdom. Yes. I mean, I threw this out to my church. I said, how many, people, how many individuals do you know who actually simply said, I will not get married yes. because I will, I will sure. save myself to do the Lord's work? Um, and I would think that's absolutely minuscule. Yes. Absolutely yes. minuscule. But then, of course, Paul also says, you might as well go off and get married if you're just going to burn up. Yes. And that yes. is completely understandable. I think there's actually still too much, possibly too much of that in the churches these days, in saying, okay, you know, you're only 20, you're only 23 or whatever, but, you know, you've got a very good 
relationship with that girl and so on. Before you slip up, go off and get married. Yeah, to rush to it, yeah. Uh, and then I think that might explain some of the marriages not really lasting. Um, mm. Difficult, it's hot stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so, when Paul talks about that, he, he seems, um, well, t- taking that passage on its own, perhaps we shouldn't, but taking that passage on its own, it seems from the sort of way he expresses it that marriage is a sort of uh, lesser of two evils or a necessary evil to contain uh, lust and excessive sexual desire. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think that more generally, um, do you think that was largely contextual, or do you think more generally had a more positive view of marriage, or...? Yes, I, 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 I think he probably did have a, a positive view. You know, some people say from those couple of passages that Paul was a general subject, um, you know, but um, I think he's just being very, very honest and very, very practical mm-hmm. about sexual desire, sort of thing. Yes, yes. Um, I suppose, I suppose some of it might come into sort of um, the aestheticism and a lot of that uh, and that culture of it was seen as being <clears throat> well you could be a better philosopher of you or something like that kind of thing um, and more committed to your, your writings and etc. Um, uh, I, I suppose one of the other questions is uh, obviously one of the other passages where this is talked about a lot is, is one uh, Timothy one ten, mm-hmm. uh, where the same Greek word, I think it's the the only other time it's used in the whole Bible of uh, Arsenokotes is used. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you think one? Uh, obviously, a lot of um, I think most scholars believe quite firmly that one Timothy wasn't written by Paul himself, but that it was dedicated to him or written in his honour or written mm-hmm. after his style. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you accept that? And if so, do you think it could have some sort of authority on uh, that passage about um, homosexuality? I, I don't know about that theological argument. And, uh, yeah, I can't, I can't comment. I, I still would say that scripture, we have to, well, we have to, I still think that scripture stands authoritatively. I mean, people argue, don't they, that, you know, something about James is very weak and should never be put in black and white. It's actually one of my favourite books. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really difficult to, you know, when you look at how the canon of scripture came together, when you look at some of the, the translations and they were, that they were derived, and there's actually a, quite a major human, human element in, in many ways. Yes. And I'm, I mean, I come from a background where we still very much use the authorised version of I mean, it. Yes. Crazy. Uh... Um, and people just think that that's the only infallible version. Actually, if you were to read the history of how that came together, yes, yes, you know, precisely, yeah. Um, yeah. I think there are there are better ones. Yes. And I think you know they all contribute in different ways. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I know so many people in my neck of the woods really who say, "My goodness, you know, you've got to follow the AV because this word is wrong." Mm-hmm. Um, but hang on, what about every translation that's yes. gone on and and then not being translated from the original bit. Yes, yes, yeah. What about every different culture where, yes. you know, the, the culture is, it, it, it is a hot, dry Middle Eastern desert? Yes. What about the Eskimos, yes. where the same words don't, don't even exist? Mm. And I think, really, we, 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 we can then 
become so obsessed with the absolute letter, sure. I think the amazing thing about the Bible yes. is that God has actually protected and preserved that truth yes. over thousands yes. of years through every culture, through yes. every translation yes. or mistranslation, yes. um, and still the truth can come yes. through. Yes. Um, to my mind, that, that, that's, yes. that's where I would come. Um, yes, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a good point, because I think a lot of the a lot of the books that um, are out, not all of them, but quite a lot of them that are outside the canon today um, were found later on, and so there'd been a whole period mm. where they hadn't hadn't been known of or been read in mm. cultures, and so it doesn't really um, work well with the sort of divine inspiration of scripture idea and the idea that God preserves and keeps His word to His people. Uh, I think that's a good, that's a good point. Um, uh, obviously, the other big passages, um, Romans 1, particularly sort of verse 24 onwards, uh, which talks about um, because people rejected God and turned away from him, he gave them over to um, active same-sex practices. Um, that's one expression. Yes, yeah. yes, that's very true, yes. Um, and obviously, there are lots of ones, uh, as you rightly say, and that obviously goes back to 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks about lots of other practices. Um, and... Another, uh, another point, um, which I think is, is widely accepted, is that most sexual sins in the Bible are actually heterosexual ones. Um, but I think um, th the question here would be, when Paul says he gave them over, doesn't that imply that he's talking about people who originally they were heterosexual and had those desires and urges and attractions, and they were born with those, and then he gave them over? So in other words, he, he, he transferred it. So, when, so perhaps it could be argued that Paul isn't referring to people who are naturally born with same-sex attraction and have had that throughout. What, what would you say to um, Yeah, I, I, I have heard that argument. And some people would actually say, when you, when you use an unnatural way of expressing yes, it, yes. it depends what your natural is. Isn't yes, it? precisely, yes, 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 yes. Um, uh, you know, which I, I don't think is a, is a very strong argument. Right. Um, I, no, I, I, I would... I, I wouldn't go down that line either. Personally, I, I would tend to, to think, and I don't know if you think my theology is right or I recommend sure. TFT because it's sure. way beyond. But my take on it would be um, that where people chose a particular lifestyle or activity, knowing in their conscience that yes. this wasn't right, then in the end, God says, oh, you know, okay, get on with it until such time as you, you see the error of your ways because you have got a conscience. Do you see what I mean? Um, so, you know, I think the Lord pursues us, He follows us, He looks up for us, He, he tries to draw us back sure. on the Son of the Father of the Prodigal Son sure, and, sure. and that sort of thing. But I think there are also occasions when we willfully choose, yes. especially in something that's um, very sort of um, pleasurable yes. um, to the senses, like yeah. gambling and yeah. money, yeah. like drinking and getting drunk, like sex sure, and all sure. you know, More hedonistic, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right, yeah. So, um, no, I don't think it's anything about turning someone's sexuality around. I, 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 and I, I think really that scripture is talking about idolatry, yeah. 
it's often picked up as a very strong thing to do with homosexuality. I think that's a very small or incidental. Yes, 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 yes. Um, going back to 1 Corinthians 6, um, in terms of, uh, obviously from, from verse 9 he talks about uh, the vice list, and, uh, which includes homosexuality. Um, also, in I think it's in the same chapter earlier on, he talks about um, hair length and it being apparent to us um, what the natural hair length is for males, that it's short, and for females it's long. Um, and there's that, sorry, I think it's 1 Corinthians 11, actually. Um, and obviously, well, I think it's fair to say that most Christians today would say not particularly bothered how, how long uh, hair is, and it's more a cultural, perhaps subjective, relative thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not really apparent in nature. Nature itself doesn't teach us that, which is what Paul says. Mm -hmm. um, if that's the case with something like hair length, mm -hmm. and he's using the same language of natural, and does not nature teach you itself, mm -hmm. um, do you think that could have some sort of bearing on his condemnation of homosexual sex in, in the earlier chapters of uh, 6? I think, yeah, I think culture teaches us what is acceptable. The culture of the time, um, in the main, so because we, 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 we know, we're, we're fairly persuaded that men had quite long hair in Jesus' day. Yes, we? yes. Um, well, we're fairly persuaded about that. And another one is what clothing you should wear about women yes. and shouldn't wear women's clothing and so on. Yes. And some people, I know, I've known people, especially in the 60s, six, six 70s and so on, who, you know, the men were very strong, but their wives should not wear trousers. Yes, yes. Um, and I think there's still a bit of that... Well, I, probably people like the Amish and Mennonites would still do that today. I, I yes, think. yes. Um, so, um, I mean, I must say, I do much prefer ladies to wear skirts and dresses and trousers in, in the main. But, I mean, the thing is that, that in, in certain cultures, um, the, the women actually wear sort of baggy pants or, or, or whatever, you know, or in some cultures, like, Jesus' day, and then we're flowing robes and so on. So it, it's it's got to be done, I think, within the culture of the time, even within my lifetime. And things have changed very much in terms of, say, hair and, and what's acceptable and so on. The passage that you refer to is very difficult to distinguish. Is this where it talks about men and women covering their heads? Uh, yes, yeah, one could just learn about the. Um uh, women having head coverings. I'm not sure whether it's referring to natural hair as a head covering or additional garment, but um, and about that pointing to the glory of man, and but, but with men shorter hair because yeah, that message. It, it's difficult to know whether that's something again to do with the culture at the time. Yes, and a lot of people would argue that was to do with the culture at the time. Yes, um, and. Um, some people, I mean, in my church, a lot of the historically yes. more hats. Now, I think half to two thirds okay. of the women actually in my congregation on a Sunday morning would still wear hats, but it's only about a half a year. Sure. Um, it, there's a word in theology about some, I can't remember what the word is, but it's an absolute given. It's, 
essential to our Christian faith, and other things are secondary. Is it, is it first principles and about primary and secondary issues? Well, that, that sounds like it, primary and secondary. Yes, word, yes. Um, I'm not sure the specific. No, but, you, you know, I, I think even in my church, for example, yeah. I don't think most of our leaders now would say that head covering for women is a primary thing. Yes, primarily, yeah. yes, yes. Um, whereas they're not going to say a little bit of fornication on the side, or, <laughs> you know, not going to do that, are they? I think one of the points just developing on that is, um, <clears throat> well, obviously the, the question is, is uh, homosexuality natural or not? And then if you answer, okay, it's, it's not natural, which is what Paul seems to say, and what a lot of Christians on the more conservative side seem to say, it's, it's then another jump, arguably, to say, from going, it's not natural to saying it's wrong, because you could say all kinds of things that a lot of Christians use today on a regular basis, like technology or new medical treatments, etc., aren't um, natural. Um, I suppose it depends how you define natural. Right. It's a bigger debate. But um, w would you say, I suppose this gets into a bit of a very big question of why, why people think homosexuality is wrong above and beyond the Bible seems to say. Um, I, I guess the, the question would be, um, how do you make that transition from saying it seems not natural to therefore must be wrong? Uh, right, yeah. Um, I, I, I think... I, I would say homosexuality... Depends what you got to define your terms. Yes, but yeah. I, I, I can't just say homosexuality is wrong. I can't say homosexuality is a sin. Sure. Um, that's why the, the term same-sex attraction or same-sex sure, attraction yeah. is a bit better. Yes, yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, actually, my church leader once said homosexuality, that's a lifestyle. So, hang on, you can call, you just define your terms. Yes, are you precisely. Are about an attraction or an interest? Sure. Or are you talking about the lifestyle, which sure. is, you know, very sexual, permissible? Um, you know, if you use the phrase of the gay lifestyle, by implication, you're talking about something that is morally very, very suspect. Um, so you've got to define your terms. Yes. Um, undoubtedly. Um, I'm not sure it's even fair to talk about it as being natural or unnatural because um, it comes naturally to a same-sex attracted person. Yes. To me. But sure. for non-Christians, um, of course they would say, this is who I am. Right. You know, I, it, is, it is completely natural to me. Um, now, you're then getting onto um, a genetics argument as well. Yes. Um, and some people would say it is, you know, we've discovered the gay gene and all that sort of thing. Difficult, really. The thing is that, as a same-sex attractive person, it would come naturally to me. I didn't choose it. I don't think it is... I think it's because of God's fall of creation. That's why. Right. I think, I think it's all just part of the, the sin that inculcates the world. Um... Actually, same-sex attraction is almost certainly fixed, I don't know, fixed, uh, developing anyway, in most people around about the age of two, three or four. Right. Um, obviously, a guy only becomes aware of it. Yes, later on. Yeah. Or adolescence or whatever. Um, but then all sorts of things you become aware of sexually yes. and physically at that age. Um, so... You know, is it reasonable to make another step and say, well, actually, 
it was there genetically, yes. or could you wriggle out of it and say, use a phrase like genetic predisposition towards? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 yeah. Just, I, I mean, you, you get, I mean, a, a major explanation often is, is uh, for a boy from there is that he didn't have a good relationship with his father, or he had a smothering mother, or both. Um, you know, my, my, my brother, I have a brother who is quite a woman, one person who's quite a womanizer. Right. I know plenty of, tw I know twins, where both guys are gay, but where one is gay and one is straight. Yes, yes, yeah, sure. So I would say that, you know, that I would totally understand someone who doesn't know God's and comes naturally to Jesus. Yes. So I am. There's also a lot of great of Christians and non-Christians who wouldn't want to be gay, yes. wouldn't want to, you know, they wouldn't have chosen it. Yes. Um, probably the majority of them, but most of them say, well, that, to me, this is natural, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. um, just one final thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I suppose it's largely about, um, well, um, about the primary and secondary issue distinction. Mm -hmm. um, is there a particular biblical passage that, that, that that's being derived from? Because I, I, I hear a lot of... Um, I used to go to a conservative evangelical church myself, and yeah. I heard a lot of talk about that. And so when I said, well, why are you much... Well, uh, what's the word? Why, why do you talk a lot more about uh, human sexuality and, and the ethics thereof mm. over and above uh, the ordination of women mm. and, and often... I'd say, well, well, why is it you're threatening to leave the Church of England over sexuality, but mm. you weren't over women? Because t to me, in many senses, um, the Bible seems to be quite clear on the ordination of, of women, uh, certainly as, as priests, uh, deacons are different. But, um, yeah, is, is, is there a particular place that you, you derive the primary, secondary issues, no. distinction from? Um, how do you, or and another question would be how do you know that the ordination of women as priests yeah. is less important than uh, sexuality? No, I, I, that's, that's a whole other kind of um, you have to because I don't know enough about the primary and secondary and all that sort of thing really. But I think I suppose sexuality it is always raised as the hot potato, and yes. it, you know, because of all the implications of it and that sort of thing. But I would agree. I mean, I've got a friend who was in the Anglican ministry um, for quite a number of years, and he, when they started ordaining women priests, was it 20 years ago? Yes, more, so. He absolutely couldn't for one moment ever find any justification for it and had to leave the Anglican church. They got quite a good payout at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so, no, I, 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 I can't really um, help you on that, to be honest. I mean, one, one problem is a bit of a sideways shift here. One of the problems is that the, homosexual, the word homosexuality is so absolutely highly charged. And I even sat it with a group of my elders from church once, and, and one of them said, but it's an abomination, isn't it? Um, and it is, it's, it's sometimes seen as the worst sin when it's not even a choice. You know, mm. um, and as I said, there's an awful lot of things that are an abomination. I don't think there's a hierarchy 